What are the things that sort of matter in significant and substantial ways? What are the, the truths that the Bible teaches us so that we can understand who God is and uh, who we are in light of him? And so We Believe is a series on theology, and each week we have been highlighting certain theologies. And the interesting thing about community, we're talking about gospel community and mission, but the, certain, or the important thing about community is that it not only is a theology of the Bible, but it's one of the steps in our discipleship pathway, simply meaning we believe that one of the ways you grow in Jesus is by being rooted in a meaningful community. So our study, Rooted in Ephesians, we talked about that a few weeks ago, and we began kicking the ball around in Acts chapter 2 last week. We'll continue that today. It's an important one to own in your heart because it does help us to evaluate how we love people in light of the love that God first showed us in Jesus. The way we process and live out community truly is one of the greatest evidences of our understanding, head, heart, and hands of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And so over these past weeks, we've talked about what healthy expectations in relationships are and in a church community what they are, which is at times sort of an incubator, the church family anyways, for unhealthy ideals. And so we've referred to these sort of two poles over these past weeks, relationships from the angle of the real and what some of the challenges keeping us from building meaningful relationships in our life are because of the ideal. So I want to open our teaching this morning by reflecting on a quote. I've shared this with you a few years ago, and I really would encourage you, this, this quote is from a German Lutheran pastor who passed away many, many, many years ago in 1945. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he actually was executed by the Nazi regime because of his resistance you know, to that tyrannical nonsense that took place overseas. He was a strong voice against what was happening there, and because of his faith and his resistance to this, he was eventually executed. And I find it interesting that he wrote a great deal of things, but he wrote a book called Life Together, and he was talking about the importance of Christian community and the dangers of relational idealism, how that absolutely destroys the beauty of what Christian community is supposed to be. And so I'll share with you now, this is sort of a guiding post that we will kick around this morning. It's it's sort of maybe a pace call, we might say, for the ideas that we're talking about. And in his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, Speaking of the people of God, if we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty, if on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that Christian brotherhood, the way we relate to each other, brothers and sisters in Jesus, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal, an ideal that we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. Now that that idea, this quote, if you've ever read anything on the theology of community, you have likely come across this. If you have not read anything on the theology of community, this is something you should bank, store in a place that is a really important one because it's probably the best paragraph of writing outside of the Bible that has ever been written about the idea we're talking about. And the essence of this famous and powerful teaching says that as God's people, we should always strive for meaningful, rooted, encouragement, encouraging community, what we've been talking about over these past weeks. However, there's a tension in this quote, as there is in the scripture, 
Because of the difficulties of life and the reality of sin, we should be cautious of how easy it is to forget what we're talking about here. It's very easy in our world and amongst people we say that we love in Jesus and they who love us to forget that we should be looking at people through the lens of what God is doing. But we oftentimes can look at people through the lens of what we feel like isn't happening in their lives. And what happens then is we create sort of a penalty system. We begin to penalize others for the places where they miss the mark. Now, I'm not arguing against the fact that we need to exhort and encourage each other and sort of challenge each other in the faith. But I'm saying there's a difference between that and sort of becoming the type of person who is so critical in their spirit that they can no longer see good in people. Or what they do is they, they just live to sort of critique And the importance of this is that we as a church and in our relationships, we're trying to cultivate a common culture of grace that creates growth in Jesus. And if we function from scriptural ideals, not scriptural ideals, but if we take these ideals, these truths that are in scripture, and we create such a bar for them that people can no longer achieve them, and then we penalize them when they can't get there, what happens is we create a culture of condemnation that actually stifles the very Christ-centered growth we're trying to develop. And so with this in mind, this morning, I'd like to talk about two relational action steps. This is sort of, not that there hasn't been practical application of what we've talked about in weeks past. This is sort of the nail I want to drive home. Two ideas, two truths that really give us a bit of a bearing to determine whether or not we are functioning from the real or the ideal when it comes to people and churches. And they're action steps because every Christian has to believe them at some point in such a way that they become truths that are in our hearts so that we apply them to our lives. And I give this caveat because what I'm saying is these are not things to just think about. We might begin there, but eventually these have to be things that we do. Because if we are not doing them, then we run the very high risk of dishonoring God in our friendships and our relationships and maybe stifling the growth that God desires to bring about in people, men and women who are following his son. And so I'll waste no more time talking about the ideas that I want to discuss this morning. I'd like to introduce them to you. There are two action steps, and we'll look at each one individually. The first one is this, and I say action step again because I want you to think about this from the angle of how this is or isn't happening in your life and how this can be applied in our lives. We want to encourage each other and challenge each other in these areas. Action step number one, to build healthy relationships. And I simply mean by this, anytime you have proximity with people, whether that is in a church family, in your families, with other Christians, with men and women that you know that are far from God, whatever the relationship is, We want to talk about this also, you know, kind of particularly from the angle of the church today. But to build healthy relationships in the church, we must resist unchecked individualism. I talked about this loosely last week. I'd really like to talk about it this morning. And I want to give you sort of a a summation of what was just read in Acts 2, verses 42 and 46. I'll read two sentences to you. Here's what Luke tells us here about the Christian community in the early church. All the believers were together, he tells us, and they had everything in common. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And then he lists some details. They're not all here, but he lists some details about what's going on. They broke bread supper, and that's behind me for a reason. I'll touch on it here in a moment. They broke bread, meaning they were eating together in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And the reason I put the word supper there is because if you were with us two weeks ago, you know that we talked about the other type of bread Luke talks about in the book of Acts. They're breaking two types of bread in this passage. First is the bread, the communion table, essentially. They are remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And like the the way we take communion every second Sunday of the month. But they're also breaking physical bread together, meaning they're hanging out together and eating. They are enjoying each other's presence. That's one of the signs of a healthy relationship is that we can value and enjoy being in the presence of another person or people. And what I want to point out here is that 
This whole section of Scripture, as well as the, other, as the other places where we read about this, every epistle that talks about the church is going to sort of highlight the idea that I'm stating here. One of the interesting things worth noting, pointing out in Acts 2 and the other places that describe the church, is how many times the word they and all are used to describe the family of God. There's always these sort of plural ideas. We are individuals that are part of a much larger family. And it gives you a real sense that these individual people, especially in Acts 2, they didn't just see themselves as individual people in Christ. They also had a real corporate identity in their church family, meaning they were individuals, but they also recognized they were a part of something much bigger than just themselves. Thus the alls and the they were's and the they broke, and this was in common. All of this is talking about their interaction with each other. And the beauty of this passage is where we face one of the first real challenges in building any type of healthy relationship in a Western world, whether it's a church family, ideals in our, in our family relationships and our friendships, whatever they are, in our culture, people tend to value individualism and personal autonomy above all else. And in the past, I have referred to this idea as valuing the me over the we. Both the me and the we matter. But when we drift in our world, what tends to happen, at least on this side of the planet, is we drift into the me at the expense of the we. And put on your history caps for a moment. This should not surprise us if you understand a little bit about the history of the Western world, in particular the continent that we live on, in particular the country we live in. Our way of living, if you read anything in the history books, was birthed with this ethos. It permeates the whole Western realm and it defined, it birthed the very nation that we live in. It permeates our culture to this day. You can explicitly see this. This is my favorite thing to point out. Whenever we talk about the, the, the sort of the theme of individualism or autonomy that drives a lot of our thinking in our world, it's the first flag that was designed for the American Revolution. If you go back to the origins of this country, before it was even this country, there's this amazing flag. Just search Don't Tread on Me on the internet, and you will find this this afternoon. There'll be a billion hits for it. It was a really interesting flag that depicted a coiled rattlesnake ready to strike with the words below it reading Don't Tread on Me. And the idea behind that, which became the sort of infamous battle cry for the revolution, was that no one had a right to tell anyone what to do with their own life. In the context of that flag, it was the British government or the British monarchy. That above all else, individual liberty is what mattered most. And so while that is a part of our, our makeup as a people, I want you to hear what I'm saying here and don't hear what I'm not saying here. I'm not trying to make a political commentary about this idea. There's some real great value in this. I'm just trying to point out how ingrained in the American psyche, maybe without us even thinking at times, how ingrained this idea is in our minds and our hearts and how problematic it can be if you fly a don't tread on me flag in the face of your savior Jesus, or at times the people whom you claim to love and whom you desire to love you in Jesus. If we raise that flag in the Christian faith, we might actually run into some problems because doing so can undermine what a disciple is and can create a real tension in your relationships. Ironically, on the other side of the world, in the Eastern Hemisphere, we predominantly see that the we is more emphasized than the me. It creates its own challenges, but that's usually not our issue here, which is why we'll emphasize this side of the coin today. The reason that individualism and autonomy like this can be a, a good thing at times, don't hear me saying they're entirely negative, I'm not arguing for sort of a, a mundane or monotonous lifestyle where everybody is like homogenized and there's no difference. We talked about diversity a few weeks ago, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, is when, when individualism and autonomy like we're talking about here, this good thing, when that becomes an ultimate thing, well you've heard me say this a million times, any time that God gives us something that is good, and that good thing becomes an ultimate thing in our hearts, what happens is we make an idol out of that, and then we subject the very nature of who our God is to that thing. 
So in this case, if, if individualism and autonomy is what drives you, then you are likely going to create an idol that erodes the familiar nature of the church and for, the, for this fact, any other relationship you have. It can be toxic if it is left unchecked and becomes the ideal that you live your life by. And the way that you can know this, whether it's in your own heart or observing the sort of actions of other people, the way you can see if somebody has this idol in their heart is when they say that they are comfortable having a personal relationship with Christ, some form of individual faith, uh, but they have minimal or no desire to have meaningful relationships with their brothers and sisters in Jesus. This is one way it's expressed anyways, is individual spirituality, which is one of the hallmarks of our modern Western world today. There's a form of religion, faith, whatever it is you're following, and you do this alone. No one else is invited into that. It's sort of a solo journey. That can be a problem. But on the other hand, I want you to, to think about this. It's undeniable. I don't want you to hear me say that there isn't a personal aspect to the Christian faith. On one hand, it's undeniable that the Bible says we have a personal relationship with Jesus. In fact, we enter the kingdom this way. We look at Jesus, and he is speaking to us, and we determine at some point in our lives whether or not we want to see him as our Lord and Redeemer. That relationship begins that way. It begins personally, without doubt. But it also says we were never meant to only have a personal relationship with Jesus. In fact, it's very likely that if you are in Jesus, it's because other people were sharing him with you or discipling you or answering your question. The, the, the questions, the very nature of a personal relationship begins in the context of other people. If you've ever wondered why so many people in the modern church era are okay with just having a personal spirituality like this, this is why. Or they claim to love Jesus but not his church, this is why. It's one idea we have to be careful of. And on the contrary, there's an, another sort of idea that pollutes this well in a, in a different way, or at least has the potential to. There's an interesting phenomenon that's developed over the past 15 years or so that is now being written about extensively. In fact, I get emailed articles uh, constantly. There are books being written about the subject now, and there's also periodical uh, literature being written about that. And anytime periodicals, you know, magazines like Christianity Today or sorts like that, when they begin addressing these topics, it simply means they're bringing these things up because they're becoming cardinal challenges in the church. On the contrary, you have sort of one person who's individual. Their individualism is, is expressed in the fact that they don't want other people involved in their life. On the other side of the fence, there's a form of individualism that, if left unchecked, can become a problem in a different way. This is where a person is so, they sort of, at times they can care more about what they think about themselves and what's going on in life, that they start to forget about their responsibility to others. And what tends to happen here is they become involved in multiple church families. This was like a small thing 15 years ago. It is perhaps the biggest challenge facing the modern Western church right now. Because it's much easier, I want you to think about this, their individualism is expressed in the consumption of multiple things from multiple churches. It's just a different way of flying your flag. It's become much easier, I believe, to consume, okay, think about this. We're talking about a Christian faith where, where we're really arguing for the fact that there is a great lack of perfection. There are challenges and problems, and the more we get to know people and relate with them, the more likely we are to see and sense them, and the more, the more real the reality that God puts in our life to, to labor with those folks through that stuff becomes. That's hard, but I think it is much easier to consume strengths from multiple churches than it is to labor with the weaknesses of a church or the brothers and sisters in Jesus in your family. What happens here is this, this subtle attitude develops where we commit to building up the areas, we, we lack the commitment to build up the areas of a person or a family because of its lack of perfection. We look at it and we say, this is not good enough in this person, therefore I need to go find somebody else. Or this is not good enough in this church, therefore I need to find this in other churches. 
And what ends up happening is we look at things that we feel are imperfect, things that don't benefit us, and we walk away from them to go find more perfect expressions of that. And what's that, what that has created in the modern world is a plurality of church hopping in a way that I did not think was possible 15 years ago. When I started pastoring just shy of 20 years ago, like moralism and legalism was the thing. That's really not the thing anymore. Things like this, the sort of rampant individualistic freedoms that we practice in faith oftentimes create these problems. And so what happens is it, it becomes like the exact opposite of the theys we're reading about in Acts or the attitude that Bonhoeffer is writing about because we start to stitch together super church families for one person, for self. We Cherry pick the best of everything that is around us. You add the internet into this. We can listen to the best sermons, the best teachings. We can have the best relationships at big events. We, we can literally take preaching from this place, music from that one, friendships from this one, add to the list. We just cherry pick and we erect a church that actually doesn't exist because we have hived everything from millions of things around us with the click of a button now today. Now, all this religious consuming, I want you to think about this. It is almost always done at the expense of serving and building up the imperfect people whom God has really put in your life. In other words, when you step away from the challenge, when you step away from the, the person who is not where they need to be with God to try to find more perfect expressions of faith, we become expert at pointing out problems but not, necessary, not necessarily committing to the solutions. We don't build up what is in our life. We just find something that's more perfect in another area of life. And this has become one of the hallmarks of the modern Christian life. But I want you to know that while this is not entirely bad, I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to other sermons or be engaged like that. What I am saying is that over time, that desire to consume can tend to take a person's mind and heart over. And it, when that happens, when we simply look to everything else to, find, to have our needs met, we can very subtly start hurting the heart of God, who looks at us in very imperfect ways and commits to be with us for all the days of our life. It hurts the heart of God. It can clearly hurt the person practicing it. It begins to undermine the importance of discipleship and mission. And it, without question, hurts the people that are in that person's life who no longer garner their attention or care. Because it leaves you loosely rooted in multiple places. And this is usually based on what a person thinks they, they need or what they want. And I want to make a strong case for the fact that it can really drift into a place where it is at the expense of being able to be those things to someone whom God has immediately placed in your life. And that's why I say when left unchecked, it becomes a consumption rhythm. We are just absorbing all of these things from all these places. And we forget how important, like neck and neck, what we believe, our orthodoxy, is meant to shape what we do, our orthopraxy. So when we read about something in the Bible, truly we can say the effect that it's really taken hold in our heart is when we are actually practicing that in our lives. In the consumption mindset, though, you can't practice because you're just too busy taking. I want you to think about this idea in contrast to what the Scripture teaches us about people and relationships. The Bible never calls the church a, a loose collection of people solely focused on what they think is best for self. Rather, it refers to us as a family, a tight family. The word partnership for gospel, gospel partnership, these ideas all talk about sort of holding hands together and laboring towards a common cause for, the, cause for the kingdom of God and in each other's lives. It teaches us regularly, the Bible, that we do matter. Don't hear me saying that the Bible is not concerned with us focusing on ourselves. It completely is. But I'm also saying that we cannot only focus on ourselves because we have serious responsibilities before God and to each other. Ideas like we've been called to love each other, to be around each other, to bear each other's burdens, to teach each other, to build each other up, to correct each other, to be patient with each other, to suffer for each other at times. And that list goes on in the Bible. 
I mean, the list is almost endless on all of these ideas that teach us about how we're to relate to each other. But if we get to the place where we think maturity is rooted in finding more perfect forms of faith, what happens is there are no others anymore because that is sort of a solo journey. It's another form of individualism. And so the bottom line here is living like this, living sort of in a communal way, a healthy communal way, where we recognize that God's love for us is meant to deeply be invested in the people around us. That becomes impossible if autonomy is our God. And I know that the resistance to this is a very practical one. While a transparency and accountability in a relationship like this is not always easy to have with other people, the reality of this is you cannot grow in Jesus as his disciple or have a healthy church body without them. You cannot have healthy Christian relationships or healthy relationships with people who are far from God if you don't value this idea. You'll never make it a point to be with them. It just won't happen. And I really believe this is why consuming like this, this sort of multiple church thing, is a thing today. It, left unchecked, it can concoct a perceived perfect Christian religion. And if it's left unchecked, it is disconnected from real relational discipleship. I've listened to a lot of sermons online, but I don't have anybody asking me about that the following week. It never happens that way. When you are in real community, however, with somebody, the paradigm begins to change. Let me give you an example of how truth in meaningful relationship is very different than consuming truth or uh, religious paradigms. There are two totally different faiths that they produce. I'll give you a practical relational example of this in my own life. A few months ago, uh, my girls, who are eight and nine now, we were kicking a ball in the front yard. And this is something that they like to do. Whenever they want to do it, I go out and do it with them. But we were just playing in the front yard, kicking a ball around. And none of us are really accurate with the ball. And so the ball would regularly go into the street. And you know what kids do when balls go into the street, especially when they're little. They just tend to impulsively want to run after the ball. And so at first, I had a ton of grace with them when they wanted to do that because they are young and even now are still young. And they're unaware fully of the danger of cars. They know that they get in one to drive around, but they don't have sort of a mental picture yet of what being hit by one looks like. And so we are constantly trying to ingrain in their head the importance of being aware of their surroundings in the street. Now my girls are a bit older. They've been hearing this spiel from me for like four years, but they're a little older, and at times they still do run into the street without looking. So we have to sort of correct them and stop them there. There's like this impulse desire to run into the ball without looking for cars. And at this age, this has to be addressed in more serious ways, even though doing so can be an unpopular move for me. Talking about not running into the street is very different than actually having to labor in somebody's life to help them not just run into the street. Because what that means in that moment is at some point you're going to have to bring this up. Like it goes beyond uh, kicking a ball around to maybe even taking the ball away or reprimanding, like disciplining a child for it. The problem with this is that you, you really only have one or two ways to handle this. And as a, as a father particularly, there's really only one, one option here. Neither one of these are necessarily popular, or one is not popular. But when you look at this relationship, to not intervene would be a problem. So my first option here is, because I desire to keep the relationship intact, I, I can say nothing. I can sort of adopt the first attitude we talked about, because confronting them will just tread on their natural desire to do what they want. I mean, that's what they want to do, which is why they do it. It's what we all wanted to do when we were kids. We just run into the street until our parents or people we love teach us about this enough to where it sticks in our hearts. But I would argue that doing that greatly increase, increases the risk of them getting hurt. And my inability to bring that up to be in their lives to that degree might even call into question the level to which I love them. Or I can realize that since we are in a meaningful family relationship together, not speaking into this is going to, it's guaranteed to, to hurt our relationship. 
and their lives. Because if you run into the street enough without looking, it is inevitable that at some point you're going to get, it's, you're going to get hit by a car. That's the end game there. And so as far as meaningful relationship goes, community as the Bible teaches it, our love and care for each other, this is where our individualistic paradigms begin to break down. There really is only one option here if you really love a person. And in this case, for me, it's a pretty obvious one. I've got to talk to them about that. And it's very true in our lives also. When we sense these rhythms, whatever they are, whatever the truth is, we're engaging with our minds and our hearts. It is critical that we have places to go and people to process this with. Speaking into someone's life like this is, is not always easy to do. In fact, it's pretty much never easy to do. But it is a necessary part of a healthy relationship. It has to be. And sometimes, I'll just go back to my analogy, sometimes I have to correct my daughters. To some, that action could seem uncaring. And in the heat of the moment, I know especially when they were younger, they didn't understand or appreciate having the ball taken away. However, my hope is there is a time when they fully understand why the intervention here was truly an act of love, even when they can't see it or feel it. And the same is true with the church family. And I want to just sort of take this to another angle, look at this from another angle. There's no mistake about this truth. It talks about us having to communicate with people at times, but it also means we have to be humble enough to listen to somebody when they speak to us. Because there are times, even in the situation I'm sharing with you here, there are times when I have to be able to listen to, and I'll just say it, I have to be corrected by my daughters, because in no way am I a perfect dad. I can get frustrated with them, I might yell, I might do things that I don't necessarily want to do, but at the end of the day, I know that I do not handle every situation perfectly, even in my parenting skills. And I've learned that their input in my life, our discussion in these things can really help me be a better dad. Sometimes the most meaningful applications in my life come from them because they're just unfiltered in the way they see things. I shared with you a couple of months ago how one of my daughters, Mia, just wrote me a post-it note and stuck it on my computer that said I work too much. That's what she said to me. And she was totally right. And that still sticks with me. I can still envision that post-it note in my head. To speak means that we can't only be the people that we think are doing the speaking. If we embrace in this rhythm, it means we also have to be able to be spoken to. It means we're going to have to lay down our pride sometimes and maybe be spoken into in a way that helps us to, to, to prosper the relationship that Jesus is trying to grow in us, the, the love and pursuit we have of him. And so this is a really beautiful but incredibly challenging relational reality. And it is exactly why I think so many people have become comfortable with an individual or a convoluted spirituality with Jesus. It's really easy to read the Bible in a study by yourself. It is. It's a lot harder when you're doing it with other people who are trying to figure out how this stuff is beginning to look in your life. That's a more difficult but more fruitful reality of our engagement of truth. And it only happens when we are in community. And I think the reason we see this today so, pro so strong is that the accoutrements of the Christian religion are there. You get, you get all of the the adornments of what we see modern Christianity as today, but it often can be disconnected from the heart of genuine discipleship. And my point this morning in this first truth is that neither Acts or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or any kind of valuable writing biblically or extra-biblically on community encourages this idea. In fact, it's well known to be a problem in developing the types of communities that do what happened in Acts. People were looking at this group of people and they were saying, that's crazy. Like, what's going on there? And because of this, people were finding Christ. They were being brought to the Lord daily. That's what Luke tells us. Their love and care for each other was actually the greatest evangelism tool that they had. And it's because they cared for people. And people saw that and asked questions about it. And then they recognized that their care for people was because of the great Jesus who cared for them first.
It's an important thing to recognize the dangers of individualism and community. The importance of individualism, simply meaning we're all created in God. We all have unique gifts and abilities. That's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But we should never let our individual gifts and abilities come at the expense of the greater family of God. They're meant to be used together because we are truly better together. This leads me to the second truth I want to share with you today. I want to spend just a couple of moments, we'll begin to wrap up here, addressing action step number two. Action step number two is this. To build healthy relationships, we must be willing to approach each other in love. And the reason why this is the second step is because you're never going to think about approaching somebody else if you're just concerned with an individual walk with Jesus. It won't happen. That will never be on your radar. However, part of your individual walk with Christ will fuel you to want to engage other people. And so one of the most common threats to the peace and the unity of our relationships, wherever we find them, is allowing unresolved conflict to persist. And this is why one of the most common teachings in the New Testament charges the people of the church to strive for Christ-centered unity with God and each other. And this teaching implies a couple of things. The first is that the, the church health and relational unity that we are striving for in, in this building, in our community groups, with the people in our workplaces, although it is promised to us, simply meaning amongst the body of Christ, like Bonhoeffer said and like we talked about in Ephesians, we are able to be unified because Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are unified. It's a power that already exists in us, but it's a power that has to be realized, which is why we can be at odds with each other, or we can care less about our neighbor in ways than we should. And so what I want to say is, while this is a, this is a, a grace already given to us, it doesn't just happen. There is a, 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 there is a need for us to be aware of this and to labor in this direction. And I would want to say also, when it is present in any relationship, it is truly a, a grace from God. And this is why Paul told us in Ephesians that we must fight to preserve and protect it meaning we want to maintain it. It's something worth fighting for. And so if you recall, we based all of this a few weeks ago on the Holy Trinity, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Inherent in that relationship is the greatest example of, of power and authority. All of these things that they are, what we see is never any abuse with each other there. There's a beautiful peace, unity, and community that arises out of the way they treat each other. And that is what we're striving for. That message is online. So I won't rehash it today. But it's important to remember that these healthy community ideas that we read about, the ones we're talking about today, they're not ideals or novel ideas for the Christian. They actually are attributes rooted in the very nature of who God is and the way that he's created us. In fact, it's meant to be evidenced in us. That's one of the evidences that he is real in us. And this is why striving for unity in all of our relationships is such a strong theme in the Bible. Simply put, the way we treat each other, especially amongst the body of Christ, is meant to reveal the way God desires to treat the world. That's why people were finding Christ through the actions of the, the Christians in the first century, and still do to this very day. There are lots of great men and women on earth who love God well, and people are attracted to that. And for some reason, God uses that to draw men and women to himself. So it's important to understand conflict is real. We have this great ability in us to, to overcome it. And letting unresolved conflict linger in our lives is very serious because it begins to paint a side of God that isn't one he wants painted. It's not a very real side. When conflict arose between God and humankind, he sends the great mediator Jesus to reconcile it. And if you look at conflict, the greatest one, our, our sort of being at odds with God, our sin removing us from him, he looks at this and doesn't steep in bitterness. He actually he has a way to correct this. Re re reconciliation is what he strives for. And so the very nature of our peace in our relationships is actually rooted in the peace that Christ provides us on the cross. And so wrapping up, I want to leave you with, with three biblical conflict resolution steps that will honor God and help you to deal with conflict in any relationship 
should you find them a conflict in any relationship. And when I do marital counseling, I say this all the time that there's a, a misnomer today that the absence of conflict in relationships is a sign of health. Health, And I would say that that's actually not true most of the time. What I would say is the inability to deal with conflict well is the mark of something that is unhealthy. It is pretty much impossible. And if you are a person who has never had conflict with other people, you should write a book and I will read it and not believe it. That's where I'm going with that, okay? We all have this. Even if it's just a subtle feeling in our chest, we have conflict with people. So having conflict with relations, in relationships is not a sign of an unhealthy relationship. It's actually a sign that you're probably in a meaningful relationship with somebody. However, the inability to want to deal with the conflict or the desire to push it in a direction that creates malice, that is really where unhealth come, uh, unhealthy paradigms begin to sort of develop in our relationships. So these resolution steps are deeply biblical, and they help us to approach conflict when and where it arises. I'll mention them to you briefly. Directly taken from the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. The first one is one I alluded to last week. Always evaluate the potential plank in your own eye before you go after the splinter in your brothers. And what's happening here is Jesus gives a, a really strong sort of word picture, a word image, like a metaphor, to help us understand that sometimes we're just prone to conflict and we're walking around with like two by four sticking out of our head while we're nitpicking at splinters in other people's lives. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus literally tells us this is, it's like the foundation. It's the must-take first step when dealing with conflict. And the idea behind this is when we see something going on in our, in our lives or we feel like we might be at odds with somebody, before we go immediately sort of blaming somebody for something else or pulling the pin on a relational hand grenade, we should pause and meditate on self. Before we think something is a problem in somebody else's life, we should be really clear about the fact of whether or not it is something in our life. And I think it's important to know this because oftentimes when we deal with conflict, what happens is we think like God is using us to deal with something in somebody else. And that can very well be true. But I will tell you, there is never a situation in your life or mine, even if it's a conflict with another person, where God is not most concerned with what he's dealing with in us. And this is where there does need to be individual responsibility. We need to recognize God is not just going to, we're not put on earth to basically point splinters out in people's eyes. We're also put on earth because God is trying to reform us in the way we see these things and understand these things. So our ability to assess self through the, the word of God, the truth of God, and other people is critical. Let me give you some examples of this. If you feel people are always letting you down, which is the hallmark of the idealist, it's important to first ask yourself if you've placed realistic relational expectations on those people who always let you down. It is fair to say that if in your whole life everybody has let you down, that could totally be true. I'm not, I'm not trying to get into anybody's business here. I'm just trying to say it could also be that maybe the expectation for what you have is just not realistic, and therefore nobody can ever meet your needs because what you're asking of them is so rooted in idealism that it's not possible. Maybe it's important to assess self in that moment. Or maybe you're angry because someone said, hey, they said something that offended you, like you're a little short-tempered or you're a bit impatient or you can be rough around the edges. Before we just immediately lump that into the category of conflict, it's important to evaluate in our hearts first if that's actually true. Because there are times when we can all be rough around the edges, short-tempered and impatient. And the more we dwell on that, the more likely we are to practice that. Remember, again, in any relationship, God will always be most concerned with your heart first. Because if your heart is out of check, none of this other stuff we're talking about here matters. We won't get there. And there's, there's a host of reasons, simple and serious, that could potentially be a source of conflict in any relationship. Our goal in applying Jesus' words in Matthew here is a simple one. 
to make sure that we talk to somebody about them, before we talk to somebody about who they are, we should first take an honest look before God about ourselves and ask whether or not we are part of the problem. Because sometimes we can be. Sometimes we can be contributing to the conflict. And wouldn't it be the worst thing ever if somebody really recognized a problem that maybe they were causing conflict, but you did not, uh, or I did not. The same thing happens. We are essentially, you've got one person stoking a fire and the other trying to put it out. We want both parties at, at peace. So when dealing with personal conflict, it's essential that you consult God first. That's what he's saying here, before looking to other people or deferring blame. And this really does help to ensure that we don't overreact or wrongly address an issue in somebody else's life that might really be an issue in ours. Self-evaluation through the truth of God is critical. That's the first thing. Evaluate. Splinter plank theology. Secondly, confirm your con conclusion. Whatever you come to, yes, this is a problem or no, this isn't a problem. Confirm your conclusion by praying, asking God to affirm that, and consulting the counsel of others to see if there really is a problem to address. If you want to know how to deal with community, you have to be in community. And this is crucial to do because... This is true of people, myself included. The likely, the least objective person in your own life to comment on your life during a time of conflict is probably you and me. Like, I'm probably the least qualified person to speak to me about conflict when my emotions are high because I'm just not as objective or rational as I should be in those moments or spiritually sane. Oftentimes, we just don't see ourselves clearly in those moments, as clearly as we might even believe we do see ourselves. And so as you con or after you conduct a splinter plank heart diagnostic, if you determine there's really conflict, it's really worth praying and seeking the counsel of another wise and proven Christian before you act. I'm not talking about gossip here. That's never been a thing at our church, and I'm really thankful about that. I, I am talking about you taking what you believe God is saying to you and leading you to, taking these concerns and helping or asking another godly person to weigh in on them and asking them if addressing this is actually going to honor God and your relationship. Because remember, the challenge with conflict, if, if you're easy with conflict, meaning like you don't mind it, you are likely going to be the type of person who just brings stuff up. And that can be a problem because if you bring everything up, then nobody's going to believe there's a real conflict when you do. However, if you're the type of person who is fearful of, of conflict and what it can breed, you might bury these things and never bring up things that can ultimately hurt your relationship. And so what I want to say here is not every issue mandates a talk with your brother and sister in Christ. But some things absolutely mandate a talk to protect the integrity of your faith and the unity of the church. The best way to sort those two poles out is to pray and have a person in your life to talk to you about this. And this most likely means finding somebody who is a bit further down the road of life than you are, not necessarily a peer. I'm not saying a peer can't, but I am saying it's good to have some diversification. Like, don't talk to your best friend about conflict with your best friend. That's what I'm saying. You need somebody outside of the paradigm that can speak wisdom into it. Lastly, very briefly, and I think this is most important, is you have to talk to the person. So if steps one and two check out, then you've arrived at the place where your next step is the difference between handling conflict in a way that honors Jesus, or as Paul says, giving the devil a foothold in your life that destroys a relationship. There's really, those are the two roads. And this usually is the hardest step for people because for many of us, the thought of talking to somebody like this is scary. And many times we might feel ill-equipped or just plain afraid of what might happen if we bring the issue up. So as a result, a person knows they should bring something up, but they don't. They bury the issue. And when you bury an issue that really needs to be brought up, what the Bible teaches us is you're planting a seed of bitterness. And the problem with, with seeds of bitterness that are planted in our hearts is that the Bible's packed with agrarian principles about how little things grow big things in Christianity. Just a little bit of faith in Jesus can go a long way. But the same is true with some of these sin patterns. <clears throat> the problem with a buried seed of bitterness is that eventually it grows a weed that ravages a relationship. 
and what it looks like, that weed almost always looks like a critical spirit against another person or people, maybe even an outright gossip. Typically, when, you, when it's spilling over in every conversation you have, that is an indication of a weed ravaging a relationship. None of those are good for your relationships, your soul, or the name of God. And so if you sense these attitudes developing in your heart, it's critical that you honor God and show a courtesy to your brother or sister in Christ by talking to them about this stuff. And interestingly enough, while this is not a 100% guarantee, I can tell you in the majority of situations that were either conflict matters in my own life or in sort of participating with people as they are dealing with these things, it is very common for somebody who is approached like this to be totally unaware of the hurt they've created in your life. Sometimes they don't even know. And that's why it is important that we don't, we don't want to withhold a, an opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation, especially if somebody would be really sorry about it if they knew. And so always give that person the benefit of the doubt until they give you a reason to not by having the courage to talk to them. You need a summary here. It's evaluate, pray and consult, and act. And so as we close, I, I leave you with something that I read years ago that had a strong impact on me. It's sort of the modern-day equivalent, the modern-day quote of what I opened with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's like the... It's like the paraphrase of what he said with really practical insights. It was in a magazine called Relevant. It's another Christian periodical. It was written by a pastor in Denver named Michael Hidalgo. And he shared a keen insight that I'd like to share with you that serves as a fitting way to sort of close these teachings on realistic expectations in the life of our, in our lives, the life of our church family, uh, any other relationships we have. But he sort of narrows this to the way we interact with each other in the family of God. And so he says this. It'll be behind me. He says, we should expect to be a part of the solutions to the problems we see. And then he goes on to say, it's easy to complain, point out what's wrong, and observe inconsistencies. What takes real work is agreeing to work towards solutions to the problems that exist in the local church. What I've learned is that when someone comments about the, think about this, about the poor condition of a local church building, they are often people who understand a thing or two about how to fix the building. If a person complains that people are not being cared for, they are typically someone who has the heart of a shepherd. They can see that. Is the music bad? I bet he or she is a musician, which means the next time we see something that we don't like, it may be our way of learning how we can use our gifts to serve. This is why I say oftentimes God is working in us first through the things we're observing. And he goes on to say when we are willing to serve in this way, things improve. When you commit to the imperfection, things improve. And those who have similar gifts and passions will join in your work. In the end, it's not just solving a problem, but providing a way for more people to use their gifts. Rather than going the road of individualism or the road of so much engagement that there is no individualism in your faith, you're so communally oriented, you're spread out so thin that there's no meaningful relationship, what happens here is we begin to deprive ourselves of growth and we begin to deprive others of the ability to invite them into the solutions of the very things we think are problems that are damaging us or the relationships we care about. And so I close with this. When it comes to your life and relationships, what is Jesus saying to you about your relationships? Every one of them. Spend some time this week thinking about that and praying about that and processing it. And what will you do about it if he leads you to think differently or act differently this morning or in your time this week?